In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, with seeds in it, according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in this expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above this earth across the expanses, the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was, and there, there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, 
and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, according that, according that has the breath of life in it, I give every plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had, done, had, he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of the of created that he had done. Let's pray and have a look. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it uh, written down for us so that we may see you and marvel at you and worship you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. What we want to start uh, in the next couple of weeks, we want to have a look at Genesis chapter 1 to 11 um, to set some foundations and beginnings. Uh, it's probably one of those really difficult uh, passages in the Bible that uh, has got loads and loads and loads of questions uh, for people today. Um, and so we are, by definition, not going to be able to tackle every single issue that you may have uh, on it, uh, because there are so much in it. Specifically, if you look at this first chapter, uh, if you are aware of the different issues in the world, you will know that this is a battleground, number one, for a number of people. Uh, the reality of God, how he interacts with the world, where the world comes from, um, etc., etc. So what we want to do is we want to set out some, just some basic ways of understanding it to try and um, make sense of where does God fit in and what kind of a God it is that we are talking about. So Genesis, obviously, one of those difficult things that when you read Genesis, you've got to remember that it's an historical document that was written for a peculiar people in a peculiar time using peculiar language. Um, and therefore, what you will find quite amazingly about the Bible in general, but Genesis specifically, is that it speaks in a way that kind of addresses all people everywhere, yet it does use thought patterns and connections that may not be the ones that we are familiar with. So almost every phrase and every word in Genesis 1 is under discussion for what exactly is the reference point against which I should read that. Um, and there's a great debate about all of these issues. And as I said, we are not going to be able to get into all of them. But what you will find, what is quite amazing, is that obviously the writer to the book of Genesis was very aware of the world that he was living in. 
So if you've done some reading and some thinking, you will know that he comes from the, what we call the ancient Near East. And they had an understanding of life. They had a worldview. Just like we in South Africa have a worldview, we look at life in a certain way and we speak about life in a certain way. So they would have the same uh, issues uh, in that sense. And so he's very aware of literature that is known as, for instance, the Enuma Elish. Now, if you think I'm swearing, I'm not swearing. Just describing to you a creation account that was available to the writer of this, uh, this, or this book. Um, and he actually uses some of the thought patterns and thought forms that you would find there. So if you want to go and do a Google search, type in Enuma Elish. That's a, a, a Sumerian creation account. And you will find quite a lot of similarity between that account and what you have here. Later when we get to, um, uh, when we get to the flood, I uh, will refer to, you to the Gilgamesh ep- uh, epic, for instance. Uh, there's another piece of literature that is in the background and that he's writing against in one sense, or he's aware of it, let me rather put it that way. So he's trying to use the thought forms and patterns of his time, and yet he's explaining to them how it differs and where the emphasis is lie. So it's quite interesting. When you read Genesis through a modern scientific understanding, you will also find that there will be touch points and there will be places where they will disagree with one another. And so what you find is when you read the Bible, you'll find the basic reality, that the Bible will give you certain information. It will also correct you and rebuke you, and it will help you to think straight. So that's what's quite fascinating. So I'm not going to try and explain every single phrase, uh, otherwise we're going to be here for quite some time to try and put it all together for you. I'm kind of trying to explain to you what the author is trying to set out as right up front in the Bible. So here's what's weird, all right? You know that Genesis 1, verse 1, is not actually historically where Israel starts to understand who God is. So that's a bit of a funny thing. Israel learned who God was in the Exodus. That's when they met God. That's when God showed himself to Israel as a nation, when he saved them out of Egypt and brought them eventually into the promised land. So what you find in Genesis is not how things doesn't start there and kind of historically develop in that way. It literally is something that is written quite a long time after it happened as God revealed it to Moses to give context and understanding for Israel of who their God is. Who is this God who has saved you? Genesis is telling us the God who saved you is the God who created you and created the world. Does it make sense? So what is weird is Israel experienced God as Savior before they understood the full implications of God as creator. Are you with me? It's quite important just to remember that. So obviously the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 1-1 and then systematically works its way through. That's not how people experienced history. So it's written in a slightly different order. And it's very interesting when you read the Genesis account against the Exodus experience of Israel, something starts to pop up that you wouldn't have thought about if you didn't understand that's what's going on. All right? You with me? Okay. So let's have a look. So obviously in Genesis, he's introducing to us, or to Israel specifically, the God that um, has made them. So in Genesis 1 verse 1, you can read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what's weird, if you read that sentence, depending on where you place the emphasis, will affect the way you read the rest of the chapter. 
If you place it on the end, you'll ask different questions than if you place it on the beginning, which will mean you look at different things if you place it on God or on the heavens and the earth. That all affects how you read the story, where the writer to Genesis obviously is placing it, and that becomes quite clear when you look at the structure in which he has set the material. The emphasis is on God himself. Everything else almost fades to some degree into the background. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, God did this, God did that, God saw, God called, God named, God changed, God shaped. So the dominating character, person, in this entire chapter is God and God himself. So probably the best way of reading Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is the beginning of the story of God. That is probably the easiest way of reading it. There's another reason why I want to explain that to you. So just flip over quickly to chapter 2 and verse 4. I just want to show you something. Genesis has got a specific structure, and it helps us to understand how to read it if we follow the structure. In chapter 4 of verse 2, of chapter 2 verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now you will see, if you do your homework and you start to read through Genesis, there are 11 times that you find those words, these are the accounts. So the, the, the book of Genesis is structured around, this is the account, this is the history, or these are the things that happened in one sense. So he's trying to structure the book entirely different from the way we've We've got 50 chapters. He actually only has 12. Chapter 1 is the introduction, and then you have, these are the implications in these next kind of chapters that he actually, in the way he structures his book. So right up front, the story of God runs into the story of the heavens and the earth, which runs in the story of Adam, which runs into the story of Noah, which runs into the story, you know, you get the drift of how he sets up his material. He starts by God, and then he moves over to, this is the implications of the heavens and the earth. So his main concern is to tell us about God in chapter 1, and what kind of a God it is that we find in chapter 1. So you're with me still? All right. So very quickly and very briefly and very simply, it all comes down to that first statement or the third uh, statement on your outline. The God that we find in Genesis chapter 1 is the creator and sustainer God and specifically the God who brings order and purpose to life. That is the overarching concern that he is trying to communicate to us. The God that I am telling you about is not the gods of the ancient Near East. Because they were fighting with one another. They were having sex with one another. They made human beings because they were annoyed of having to work so hard. So they made human beings for themselves so that you could serve them because they had needs. So when you read the creation accounts of the ancient Near East, the understanding of the world, of how life worked, what he's setting out here is a completely different being called God in comparison to what people understood the gods to be. The gods were capricious. The gods were like human beings on steroids. All right? That's really how they viewed the gods. 
They were all over the place. They, they acted like humans. Really, they were just much more powerful. And because of the annoyance and the infighting between the different gods in the pantheons of all the gods, I mean, I can't get into all the detail. The one killed the one, took his blood, ripped him apart, made part of the earth out of the, uh, of the one part of the blood, the other part of the blood, he made the heavens, and he took their bones and made human beings from it. All right? It's kind of nice, nice, gross, gory stuff. All right? There's war, there's strife, there's conflict. Because that is how people experience life. Isn't it? People are always striving and fighting and stepping on one another to get ahead, to find space and resources so that they may have life. And so, because that's people's experience, they thought about the gods they must be the same. If this is the reality, then that's what it was being up there, wherever that is. And this is the result of what they've done. Does it make sense? God, in revealing himself to Israel through Moses, is trying to explain to them that I am of an entire different category. That's really what he's trying to say. I am not like that at all. I have no need... I am serving you. You are not serving me. I make life for you. I create life for you. I set up life so that it will work, that it will function, that it will produce life, that it will have an exuberance of life, a joy of life, a fullness of life. That is the kind of God that I am. I'm not the kind of God who withholds and is frustrated and is kind of in need of you. I am the one who gives you everything. That is really what he's trying to set up. And he uses the kind of language. So in the middle of your thing, you've got that kind of day one, two, three, and then on the right-hand side, day four, five, and six. That comes straight out of the Enuma Elish. All right? You find it there. Basically just saying that there is a God creates the space and the sphere and the functions, and then he fills them. Just like you build a house and the structure, and then you fill every room for its specific purpose. So when you look at the way in which they think about life, a good king, a good leader, a good person, is someone who can create the structure so that there's a space to live, and then he fills that space with what is beautiful and great and appropriate so that life can happen. Do you get the idea? So it's very interesting. They're just thinking about life very different. We are worried about what the stuff is made of. That's why we've got JJ here. All right. The writer to, to Israel is saying, no, no, I want to tell you about how functional God has made everything that is there. There was no debate about who made the matter of life. That was the gods, or then in Israel's context, God. But there's very little interaction about how he made it and what it is made of. It is what is it made for is the concern. What is the purpose of this thing? That is what he's concerned about. Because that is what gives life structure and meaning, and therefore you can have life and live it. Does it make sense? So it's just very different from how we think. We are, we are obsessed with what stuff is made of. And once we think we know what stuff is made of, we know what its purpose is. The Bible's the other way around. It's not concerned with what the stuff is made of. It's dust. All right? It's ground. Whatever. But what, how is it shaped? 
And how can it be used to enhance life? And that is what he's actually concerned with this whole thing. So God dominates everything. God is referenced 35 times in this chapter. He speaks, he sees, he creates, he shapes, he names, he divides, he blesses. He is the one that has made life as we see it today, as we experience it today. That's exactly what he covers here. The functional world as we have it today is what is incredibly described here by Moses. Now, what makes that very interesting? The cosmology, in other words, the big picture of what he's saying, science is more and more actually discovering that that is how it is. Fascinating. For someone like him to have written this kind of an account in the time when he wrote it, when that was not understood because the sun and the moon and the stars were gods. Here there are lights that do what? Determine the seasons and the times and the days and the nights on earth. Well, that's what we know they are doing. At least partly. They may do more than that, but at least they are doing that. And he says, that's what they're doing. They're not gods. You don't have to worship them. You don't have to fear them. You don't have to sacrifice them. You don't have to bow down and worship them. Because they are there to serve you under God's sovereign rule. See how amazing it is? So it's quite, this is quite up to date. Even in terms of the cosmology, not in terms of the detail, but in terms of how the whole thing functions. And that's why verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 is such a weird little verse. Listen to it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit, or the wind of God, was hovering over the waters. Really weird place to start. What it's really trying to say is simply this. When something is empty and void, and there's lots of water, and there's darkness, right, it is what? Easy to live in. It's wet, and it's dark, and it's there's nothing. So how can you live there? You can't. What do you need to do? You need to create order, and you need to harness all those things and shape them in a way that they will be able to produce life. That's exactly what he says God has done. God's great, overarching, overriding concern is to bring order and purpose and life to bear. That is the kind of God that he is. That's simply what he's trying to say, which is very interesting. Because if you take that reference, and you take that reference right through the entire scriptures, you see that we all experience life like this. Life tends to want to go back to chaos. You don't do something in your house that starts to peel and break and break down. (laughs) So you constantly have to work at keeping the order. Whether that is physical order, whether that is societal order, whether that is personal order, you need to order things in order for it to work and to flourish life. And that is what he's setting it against. Because when God saved Israel out of Egypt, what kind of miracles did God use to convince Pharaoh that God is God and Pharaoh is not? Because remember, Pharaoh in the Egyptian understanding was God. 
What kind of miracles did God use to show him that he was not God? All creational miracles. Now I want to give you an exercise. See how much power you have. All right. I assume, okay, you can't do this at the moment because we've got water restrictions. Okay. But if you get to the bath tonight, all right, and you sit in the bath, and I want you to sit in the bath and do what God did when he saved Israel through the Red Sea. All right? I want you to speak to the water and to split it between your legs, split the water, and let them stand like that on both sides so that your little plastic duck can walk <laughs> on dry ground. Water in the Bible is associated with power that cannot be controlled. Beyond human control. There's one thing that humans cannot control, and that's water. God, in the beginning, there was water, and God just spoke, and it obeyed. When God saved Israel, he said to them, to Israel, listen to this beautiful thing. Please shut up and stand still and see what I'm going to do. And Moses spoke and the ruach of God, the wind of God, blew and separated the water. And that water stood like that so that Israel could walk through. Who is the one who can control all the forces that wants to bring life back to empty, void, dark. There's only one, and that's God. That's what he's trying to tell them. So that's why it's also so weird, and sorry for those of you who love surfing. Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 21 tells you there's going to be no sea in the new heavens and the earth. All right. Not because there's anything in his water. There will be no chaos. There will be nothing that wants to bring life down to chaotic, broken, void, empty existence. Because God would have removed all of that. You see the picture? So God literally can control water because he literally is the only one who can control all the forces of chaos that human beings are experiencing day by day by day by day. Whether that is physical, whether that is relational, societal, or ultimately uh, personal as well. And so that's why you find right through this, as God makes things, He says, this is good. This is fulfilling the purpose and the function for which I have created it. This will make a contribution to life. It will be not chaos. It will be not empty. It will be not void. It will be full of life. He's making a purpose statement. Does it make sense? And as he goes through all the days and he creates all the kind of spheres and then he fills them just like you do with a house, God ultimately in the last one says um, when he's made man, now that I've made it, it is very good. Man can live as the wonder in my image in a world that actually operates like this. And I have made it for him to enjoy me in this world. It's good. It's, it's actually very good. I've made it for you so that you may actually enjoy life. And that's why verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, 
tells us about the seventh day, which is really the goal of creation. And he uses some very interesting verb forms uh, in this uh, uh, this section. In chapter 2, verse 1 and and 2 and 3, there's some very interesting verb forms. Hebrews got quite a, a, a number of different ways of communicating. But he's simply just wanting to say, I have set up life so that life may actually be lived to the full. But here's very important. Nowhere does the passage say that what God has created is perfect. It is good, and it is very good, but nowhere does he say it's perfect. Now, if you want to stone me, you are welcome to try afterwards. Why that is important is because what God has set here is set in motion everything needed for life, but it's not the fullness of what God had intended. There is more to come. The purpose is more than just what he has made in the beginning. This is what is called the beginning, not the ending. That's why it's called Genesis. This is where it starts from. But this is not the ultimate end where God is going. He wants something more for us than what we have here. Isn't that incredible? This world that we're living in. Where the sun and the moon and the stars are doing their thing, so that's why we can get cold and hot and warm and have summers and winters and all these things and days and nights and all these animals that we are discovering and all how beautiful they are and how amazing they are. They're all created for us to enjoy. But that, God says, is only the beginning of my work, not the end. Because I have more in mind than that. And that's why the seventh day is the ultimate goal of creation. So there's some interesting stuff that happens. The seventh day, I've got no evening and morning, because it never ends. In the first six days, he keeps on saying, it was evening and it was morning the first day. It was evening and the second day. The seventh day, I've got no evening and morning. Because God's intent is that life, more than what we have here, but as it started, will explode into fullness forever. It's eternal, in other words. That's the ultimate goal, that God wants creation and humans and everything working together to be the place where he can dwell forever. That's really what he's saying. So it's quite incredible when you look at this. So that's why those words, the Sabbath rest, he rested from creating, not rest from bringing what he's created to fullness. And we'll touch on that next week or in the weeks to come. Maybe not next week, maybe in the fourth week when we'll look at work and rest very interesting. When we hear the word rest, we think relaxation, pina colada, on the beach, you know, doing nothing. All right. Real rest is when you have done the hard work and what you have made hums, works. That's when you're resting. Make sense? So God is saying, I have rested from making things, but I'm not resting because I've not brought what I've made to its fullness. God doesn't get tired. He's just finished working. And therefore, he has blessed that day. Blessing means I have more in store. It's in the PL verb form, which is very weird. It means the fullness of what I've just given has not yet reached its full potential. I've blessed this day. I've blessed how everything works together. That is my intent. It's for you and for all of creation to rest, to hum, in other words, to work perfectly ultimately, as God intended it to be, he's blessing it. And he has made it holy. He has set it apart. It's a specific thing. It's very different from everything you've experienced now. It's still coming. 
It's looking right into the future. Started in the past, connected to the past, so there's continuation. But the fullness is always more than the prediction. Does it make sense? What God promises us here is more than what we actually can see and experience right now. Because His plans and purposes are so much more and greater. And so, this is what He's saying to say to Israel. Israel, the God who saved you in that absolutely miraculous way out of Egypt, through all those nature miracles, culminating in Him having authority and power over the waters. This God wants to give you this world working perfectly, ultimately, so that you can be with him. The world itself, the cosmos itself, is God's temple. That's where you'll find him. As you live and walk and experience and enjoy under his authority, everything that he's made, if you function as you should function, then life will be better than what it is. Isn't that what we're all looking for? If only I could. If only others would. If only human beings won't be the way that they are, then it could be so much better. Not so? That's what he's trying to set up. That the reason your experience of life is that it is frustrating, and we're going to get there in chapter 3, but that's us, that's them as well. The reason why it's frustrating, the reason why life is sometimes hard, is not because God is at fault. It is because of humans that are at fault. But you only get there in chapter 3. Does it make sense? Because the understanding of that time was that the world, the physical world and everything made in it was bad and evil. That was the understanding. That's why life is hard, because in essence, it is evil and bad. And he says, no, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> in essence, it's good. It's very good. It's got a very specific purpose that God has for it. But something has obviously gone wrong. And who is at fault? That's the question it starts to raise. And ultimately... As we look at this stuff, we obviously find that if you go to John's Gospel, verse chapter 1, almost every single idea and thought and word of Genesis 1 is repeated in John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word. So the one thing God does more than anything else in Genesis 1 is He speaks. The Word created everything. The Word is the light of life. Darkness cannot overcome it. Does it sound familiar? No one can overcome him. He is the one who has come to fulfill every single thing that God intended for man to be in Genesis chapter 1. He is the fulfillment and therefore the guarantee that the life that God had in mind right up there explained is now here being fulfilled for everyone who will come to him. You will only be able to get order and light and purpose and human flourishing through him. That's how John sets up his gospel, his introduction 
It's almost exactly the same as Genesis chapter 1. It covers all the issues that is actually raised in Genesis chapter 1. And it adds to it a little bit because there he brings in the reality of grace. What is our God like? He is a God that wants to bless you. He is a God that has made everything to work so that you can have life increasingly. He is the God that has set apart everything for you to have fellowship with Him because this is His, this is his temple. And on top of that, ultimately, when the Word itself becomes flesh, He comes and when we see His glory, we see His grace and His truth. What is it that will take mankind to recognize who this God is. To understand the purposes and the meanings and the desires of God. And that is that God wants to give us life in abundance, in flourishing, in overflowing, never ending, never stopping. But what me and you need, as we're jumping a little bit ahead, is we need grace. We need to be forgiven for the fact that we think that life is all about us. We need God himself to step into our world and to walk with us and ultimately to pay our price so that we may actually experience the fullness of his intent for us right from the beginning. That is what Genesis 1 is trying to explain to the Israelites and ultimately to us as we look at it. So here's the wonderful thing. God is in control of the physical universe. Hands up, who of you can control time? The weather? The world producing space and food. Here's the good news. You are not in control. The great news, you don't have to be. Because God is in control for good. Do you believe that? Can you trust Him with your very existence? That's the question that kind of raises up for us, isn't it? It's incredible. Who will you trust with your life? Yourself? Genesis is quite clear, isn't it? It's not difficult. God is in control. God is good. God's goal is blessing beyond your wildest imagination. I hope you've heard it this morning. The challenge for you is, have you accepted it? Do you believe it? That's the challenge. Knowing something is really exciting and good but ultimately useless if you don't believe it. Will you put your life, your very existence, into the hands of the one who controls all things for good? 
Remember, we as humans are very simple. We are looking for that which is good. Isn't it? And we're looking for that which will be always eternally good. Genesis 1 says to us, there's only one where you will find this. You'll find it in the one that made it all, upholds it all, and will bring it all to a glorious, blessingful, wondrous end. Who will you trust? Will you put your trust in him? As obviously he's come to us, even more so in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, when we listen to the enormity of the stuff that you talk about, you, you just made the skies, you just made the cosmos. And yet you ordered that cosmos for our benefit. What are we that you are so mindful of us? Why do you bother so much with us? Why would you send ultimately even your son to become like one of us? We bow before you and we recognize our own inabilities in understanding as well as in control. And we do it gladly. For this world is functioning and it is allowing life and it has unbelievable potential for more life. And yet we are very aware that it is broken and it is frustrating and we are battling and we are afraid so often. But we thank you that we can hear this morning that the God who has made this world and the God who upholds this world has got a plan that is literally beyond the wildest imaginations and dreams that we as human beings, those who are made in your image, can ever have. So we ask you, Father God, creator and sustainer of life, that you will forgive us when we doubt your power, when we doubt your ability to give structure to life, when we doubt your word, when you give us instruction for our daily walk, for our emotional well-being, for our relational integrity, for our work day to day. We ask you to forgive us for that. Forgive us that we are so ignorant and so convinced that we can hold life together that we literally will doubt you who is the one who upholds all things and whose purpose is to bless, whose purpose is to give life in abundance, to make it grow. So here we stand, Lord. We are so amazed that you are, have given us this day, a day when we can hear again the truth about who you are. So won't you enable us to repent? Won't you enable us to embrace something of the glory of what we've seen in you, specifically in Christ Jesus? How can we doubt you? And yet we do. 
And so, Lord, in one sense, we want to say to you, we believe, but please help our unbelief. We accept. Please forgive our not accepting. We trust. Please forgive us not trusting. Be gracious to us again, Lord. Thank you that you are greater and more glorious and more kind and more forgiving and more able to bring life than what we could ever dream or long for or able to do. So help us to encourage one another to put our trust in the God that made the heavens and the earth. To you be glory and honor and praise and thanks and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.